0: Hey, Real Life Church. It's Pastor Jim. I heard a good story this week. Uh, there was a woman who um, stopped by the church and she said, I have a question for you. Every time I walk by your church, I hear laughing. It's like people are always laughing at your church. She said, I, I've never been to a fun church before. Do you have some kind of a fun church? And uh, that, was a good, that was a good report. We had our giant Halloween party. Over 1,000 people came. That was a great chance for us to reach out and invite people onto our campus who'd never been here before. We have another great party coming up in December, our Taste of Glendora, where something like almost 20 different restaurants from Glendora are going to come bring food and put that out. Uh, there's going to be a great band. There's going to be live music outside. It'll be a free event for the public. Um, and just another great real-life party. So if there's anybody in your life who you've been wanting to invite to church, you feel like this person needs to know Jesus, but coming to church on a Sunday morning is a big step for them. This is a great way to invite them into our community so they can see that we are a fun church. Uh, So uh, make sure you have December 3rd on your calendar. Be thinking about who you might invite to that, and then plan on inviting them back to the Christmas Eve services after that. Uh, uh, that is that is part of how we uh, remain a fun church as we keep bringing in fun people. So thanks to all of you who are inviters and who've been persistent about inviting. Um, hey, before we get into the, the message today, I, I do have one request that I want uh, to ask you to think about and pray over. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the year, Uh, Real Life has done a good job budgeting and being responsible in our spending. You've been very generous in your giving, so our budget has been stable. Uh, We have one little project we have to take on here at the end of the year. This is an older building, and some of the... um, uh, the, the electrical fixtures here are original to the building, 1950s or 60s, and we need to update all the uh, electrical wiring in the, the buildings. We've had elect- an electrician walk through and he said, this is not a want-to-do kind of thing, this is a must-do kind of thing. So we need to spend around $65,000 before uh, the end of the year to redo all the wiring in all the buildings and to update the lighting in our chapel. And so I'd ask you to prayerfully consider whether or not God has blessed you sufficiently that you can donate. Uh, beyond your normal giving to Real Life Church at the end of the year here, and give Real Life Church a Christmas present. We need to redo the wiring. It's just a matter of safety uh, and, uh, and wise planning for the future, but maybe prayer, prayerfully consider uh, whether or not has, God has blessed you in a way that you can help give the church a Christmas present uh, by giving beyond your normal giving here as we approach the end of the year. I'll leave that in your hands uh, to pray over. Thank you, as always, for all of your generosity and support. We're going to dive uh, back into our series of teachings here on the book of James. We're looking at a letter written by the brother of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary in the first century world, a pastor in the city of Jerusalem. So he's in the the capital of the, the Jewish kingdom and the heart of the sort of the the birth of the the Christian story before it spread all over the world. And James is writing a letter about how we ought to live our lives to be faithful to Jesus. What we believe ought to come out in what we behave, he shows over and over and over again. And so today we're going to continue uh, in this series by looking at another way that James wants to show us that changed lives change lives. That if we live lives that are gracious to to other people uh, where we are are fair in our dealings with other people, that our our witness uh, through the way we live points people towards Jesus. That's that's what we're going to look at today. So take a minute, let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you love us and that you call us your favorites, that you chose us to follow you when we didn't deserve it. And you give us everything we need in this life and then send us out into the world to be generous and gracious with others. Give us deep hearts. Of generosity. Give us hearts for the people that we pass who might otherwise be ignored, who need to be loved and cared for and invited into something bigger than themselves. Uh, Jesus, give us us hearts that are always looking for um, the lost and the least, the people who uh, are reaching out for you um, and who may just need an invitation. Now open our hearts and our minds to your word that we might know you fully. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, we're going to continue right along in our reading in the book of James. We're in James chapter 2 today, and I'm going to start right at verse 1. And we're going to look at one of the, another one of the teachings that James has about what faithful Jesus followers do with their lives. Listen to God's word. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, Now, when you first read this, it, it's straightforward what James is saying. If you throw a party, don't show favoritism to the wealthy, the people who could pay you back, the people who are maybe most important in your community, and discriminate against the poor, the least important. And we can hear that and think, okay, but when am, when am I ever going to do that? I don't. We don't have parties where there's seating. Like what, what on earth, where am I going to show favoritism of this kind? This seems kind of silly. If you've ever been to real life church on a Sunday, you know that nobody wants to sit in the front row anyway. The rich people can have it. We don't care. We don't want to sit in the front row. Um, And and on top of that, favoritism is only bad in certain cases. It seems like in some cases you're supposed to, you should show favoritism towards your own children over other children. Otherwise, what kind of parent are you? It, It seems like You can't just say never show favoritism to anybody, treat everybody exactly the same. You ought to prefer your family. Uh, I remember one time when my daughter was little, uh, she came up to me and she goes, Papa, I love you. And I said, oh, I love you too, sweetheart. And she said, no, I mean, you're my favorite Papa. I was like, oh, that's so sweet. You're my favorite daughter, I love you too. And she goes, no, you just don't get it. I really love you. And I was like, oh, I love you too. And she goes, I like you even better than chocolate chip cookies. Oh. And I said, uh, um, uh, I mean, what? Do, I like you better than oatmeal raisin cookies. What are we talking about here? <laughs> Have you ever had a chocolate chip cookie? Uh, we should show favoritism to our family. We should prefer them over everything else. And that seems normal and right. So for James to say, don't show favoritism, in, in this particular case seems strange. I, there's not a case in modern society really where we're seeding rich people better than poor people. And you, you can't extrapolate outwards and show say never show favoritism to anyone. So exactly what relevance does this teaching of James have for our world today? Think about it for a minute there are all kinds of laws in place, HR laws, that govern the way we interview and hire people so that we don't show a kind of favoritism known as discrimination, right? There's a long history of various kinds of racial discrimination in our country, and there are all kinds of laws to prevent that from happening. Uh, In fact, I was talking to a friend who moved to this country from another country, and the laws are very different here than elsewhere, and he uh, was, starting a business. And, uh, uh, we were, I said down, you know, there are certain things when you hire people in America, there's certain things that you can and can't ask during interviews. And, uh, he said, like what? And I said, well, like you can't ask people personal details about their lives. You can't, if you were interviewing a a person for a job, you couldn't ask, are you married? And he goes, wait a minute. I want to know if they're married. And I said, well, I don't care. You can't, that's not legal to ask. You can't just ask about their family. He said, well, if, if, if I'm hiring a woman and she's just gotten married and she's going to have a child, how do I find out about that so I know if she's going to leave? I was like, you can't ask that. That's not what we ask in this guy. That's a kind of discrimination that we have laws against. He goes, yeah, but I need to know if she's going to be gone for nine months, that's going to affect my business. I was like, you can't ask. We have laws against discrimination, which is a kind of favoritism. You can't favorite people who are not going to have a baby. That's just not legal. And he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll ask if she has any upcoming plans that will take her out of work for a while. And I thought, yeah, I think you can ask it that way. I think that's okay to ask. And he goes, especially if it's going to be nine months for some reason. I was like, no, you can't ask that. But but in other places, there aren't the same laws that we have here. We have all kinds of laws to protect people against favoritism. So when you think about how favoritism plays itself out, there are actually all kinds of ways in our society that we discriminate that we show prejudice or favor for and against groups of people or types of people or individuals, down to the level of the person who is socially awkward and you pick up on it intuitively, they don't know how to make conversation. And so you just breeze by them and you go talk to someone who's easier to talk to. That's a kind of favoritism that then traps that person in a place where they have trouble growing in relationships because people are passing them by. James says, if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, if you wanna be, here, here's his language, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in him, if you believe in his glory, don't show favoritism, don't, don't pass over people who every bit as much need his love and your kindness. Uh, don't skip over them quickly. And, and when you think about the context in which James lived, there's a, there's a whole rich context that he would have been speaking into, which makes this teaching all the more poignant. the The Roman culture was filled with a kind of discrimination, discrimination and favoritism, particularly for the rich and the well-off. If you were a, a Roman family and you were well-to-do and you had a son, you would raise him with a, a first-rate education. You would hire tutors to oversee him. You would culture him and prepare him for things like public speaking so that one day maybe he could be a senator. And if he was a particularly good, strong leader, maybe he could become a general in the army. And the the pinnacle of celebration of people's glory in the Roman Empire was a, a kind of a parade called a triumph. And the triumph was celebrated for a general who killed over 5,000 people in battle and brought the war to an end. And they would come back and hold this this parade for this general and and glorify this person for their success and accomplishment and achievement. And what they would do is they would march through the streets of Rome towards the the temple of Jupiter, which was the most important temple. And the, the senators would march first and then musicians would march behind them playing music. And then behind them would be the, um, the spoils of war, the things they had stolen in the battle uh, for the, from the people they had conquered. And then behind them, uh, captured prisoners uh, and uh, animals that were going to be sacrificed. And then at the very back, the general would come in riding in a chariot and a slave would stand holding a crown above the general's head. And the slave was supposed to whisper to him, you're only a mortal man. You're only a mortal man to remind him in all this glory that he's not a god. Um, and they would march to the temple and the, the captured prisoners would be killed and the animals that were there for sacrifice would be killed and then they would have a huge feast and a, a party to honor this general. And every child in Rome would witness this parade and their, their parents would hold up. This is, what, this is what glory is. This is what we should all aspire to. This is what we should all pursue. James lived in a culture in which the wealthy were glorified and the poor were blamed. If if you were poor it was your own fault. Uh, you had been cursed by the gods and been born into poverty or you had failed to achieve anything in this life. You weren't you weren't worthy. There's a Uh, a rich hierarchy of discrimination in the Roman world. And it wasn't just the Romans, there was a a similar thing in the the Jewish culture, a little bit different, but but similar, where when uh, Jewish boys were brought up, they were taught from a young age to memorize the scriptures. And from the age of five to 10, they would enter into a kind of school called Bet Sefer, in which they would memorize the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would memorize the whole thing end to end, and if they did that especially well from the ages of uh, 10 to 14, they would uh, enter a um, uh, a level of education called Bet Talmud, um, uh, where they would uh, memorize the Hebrew scriptures, all of them from end to end. So not just the first five books, but the whole of the Bible. And then if they especially excelled at that after the age of 14, they would enter into a, a level of education called Bet Midrash, where they would interact with the rabbis and dialogue with the rabbis. These were the the ivy leaguers, the ones who were going to be the the best of the best. And their hope, their aspiration was that one day a rabbi would deem them worthy to be a rabbi themselves. And if so, that rabbi would summon them to become a disciple by saying, come follow me. And, And that person would then be receive all the glory of the Hebrew culture. Because as a rabbi, you were the best of the best. You were the most educated. You were a lawyer who could decide God's will. You would interpret God's law. You were a thinker and philosopher of the day. You were a scholar. A rabbi was the highest pinnacle of Jewish society. Uh, And if you weren't good enough, if you couldn't memorize all those scriptures, or couldn't satisfy the rabbis, they would tell you at some point along the way in your teenage years, uh, it's not for you to be a rabbi, but go and ply your father's trade. Do, do whatever work your father does and maybe bring up a son of your own who can be a rabbi, and that can be your hope. So even in the uh, the Jewish culture, there was a clear a social hierarchy and, and process of, of expressing favoritism. James' words spoken in that culture are every bit as relevant today as they were back then. Because the American culture is a culture of social hierarchy and favoritism. And many people in our world bring our kids up in the hope that they'll get the best possible education so that they can get into the best possible college, so they can get a a better education and then a good high paying job and maybe ascend to being a C-suite executive or a president, maybe one day be a senator. And if they're unable to do it, then They'll bring up children who will go to good schools to get a good education, to get into the best possible college, to get a great high paying job so that one day they may be a C-suite executive. And if for any reason they can't do it, they'll bring up the next generation in the same way. We've raised generation after generation in America worshiping the achievement God. And the achievement God is never satisfied. When we fail to, achieve, fail to satisfy the achievement God, the achievement God demands child sacrifice, demands that we put strenuous expectations on our children because we weren't able to satisfy him. We live in a culture of social hierarchy and favoritism as exactly the, the Romans did and the first century Hebrews did. And, and James speaks into that culture and says, look, if you're gonna follow Jesus, It is an entire transformation of your mindset and your values. And in this world, you don't try to climb the ladders of success that your family or your culture have set up for you. You seek to please Jesus and Jesus alone. And Jesus is not pleased when we uh, achieve the, the trophies of this world. He's pleased when we love the least and the lost among us when we care for those who are ignored by society, he says, whatever you do for those people, you do that for me. So so James' call to favoritism is incredibly relevant in our modern American culture. Verse five, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Uh, God models uh, a kind of uh, favoritism to the unfavored. He he rivals the favoritism of the world. Uh, Abraham was a nobody who was chosen. Moses had a a speech impediment. He couldn't speak well. David was the youngest in his family from the smallest clan in Israel, as was Gideon. Uh, God redeemed his people when they were lost in slavery and called out uh, to him. He provided food for them when they were hungry and couldn't provide for themselves. He would choose Galilee this nowhere rural corner of the world from which to bring about his Messiah. Over and over again, God favors the unfavored. Uh, As Jesus puts it, as the scriptures will put it, God exalts those who are humbled and humbled those who exalt themselves. Ultimately, Jesus would take a servant's towel and wash his disciples' feet, a job reserved for a servant, and say, hey, I'm going to do that for you. And no servant is greater than his master. So if I'm your leader, you're not better than me. If I wash your feet, you wash one another's feet as well. Jesus calls to make a calls us to make us servants, not those who seek to glorify and exalt ourselves. Remember um, in the uh, in the story of Zacchaeus in uh, the scriptures, uh, Jesus calls out of the crowd a, a tax collector, somebody who nobody like, nobody favored, who had spent his life stealing from people uh, from their taxes in order to benefit himself and then giving their money to the Roman Empire who ruled over them. That was the, the enemy. And so he was despised by everyone. Um, and Jesus, walking through the crowd, spies Zacchaeus hiding up in a tree, partly because he's short and can't see over the crowd, but also partly because he doesn't want to be in the crowd because they don't treat him well. And Jesus picks him out of the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. And to, to share a table with someone was to affiliate with them. It, it wasn't just a, a meal. It was an association. It was a, a bonding. Jesus was committing to Zacchaeus. And because of that, Zacchaeus' life is transformed. And he turns around and repays all those he has stolen from and gives, gives away uh, a, a cro- huge cross-section of his wealth. And that's what Jesus is after. Jesus models showing favoritism to the unfavored. And James says, just as God did it, so we do it too. Uh, a lot of our, our favoritism towards important people or talented people or rich people comes from our own secure insecurities about our own standing. I don't feel like I, I have enough uh, popularity or wealth, or importance in this life, so I'm going to favor those who might be able to raise my status. Following Jesus is an entire transformation of our mindset, where our changed lives then change other people's lives. Um, it's, it's like the, the the popular kid at school, the, the football quarterback or the cheerleader who goes out to the uh, school lunch area where all the kids are sitting, and the, the little nerdy kid from the computer club that doesn't have any friends is sitting over by himself, kind of lonely, uh, eating his you know his peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, and the, the quarterback could sit anywhere at lunch with anyone he wants to because he's so popular. Everybody would love to sit with him. And he sees the little nerdy kid sitting by himself, and he goes over to the little computer geek and says, uh, hey, can I have lunch with you today? And when he does, the, the quarterback's status is lowered, and the the little nerdy kid's status is raised. And that's what Jesus does with all of us. Jesus looks at a lost creation, runaways, rebels who have wrecked the earth that God gave us. And Jesus descends from heaven to earth to say, I associate with you. I choose you. I'm going to have lunch with you today. I call you my friends. And in so, so doing, he lowered himself to raise us up. James says, if that's who God is, that's who you be. When you follow after Jesus, you live like he lived. Don't go around seeking out important people or people who are easy to get along with, people who can repay you. Seek out the the least and the lost. Seek out the lonely. Seek out the people who have been ignored and rejected. And, And you associate with those who are low in our society in order to raise them up. Um, James goes on, verse six, um, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So this is, James gets a little bit uh, anti-rich here. And you've got to imagine as a pastor in Jerusalem, there's probably some very wealthy people who probably are using and abusing their power, and it kind of gets under his skin. So um, I- I've known wealthy people who are the most gracious, philanthropic, humble people on earth. And you would have never guessed their wealth from the, the humble and generous way that they lived. But but James has in mind people who use and abuse their power. You you and I saw back in 2016, there was a political candidate on stage debating another political candidate. And uh, the one said to the second one, uh, that that guy hasn't paid his taxes. And the guy says, Well, when you were a senator, why didn't you fix the tax laws then? The reason you didn't is because you and all your friends are using the same loopholes that I'm using. And that's what James is talking about. It's not one party or another. It's people who know the law and control the law and make the law using the law for their own benefit despite the fact that it is ethically dubious. It's not one party or another. Stop trying to blame the other party for what is a corruption that runs throughout political systems. James is talking about people like that. People who gain power to use power for their own self-advancement. Uh, aren't they the ones who are exploiting you, James says. The worst place that this happens isn't in the political world either. It's in the church. It's uh, it's when uh, people in the, the world of the church think that they can use money and power to get what they want out of an organization that is designed for loving God and other people. Um, I, uh, this, this has not happened at Real Life Church, and this is not a complaint about Real Life Church, but I've sat at other desks at other churches where people who had been attending church for five or six decades would come sit in my office and literally say to my face, if you don't give me more of the music I like, I will stop giving money to the church. And I would look them in the face and say, with the gleefulness of a child let loose in a candy store, I would say, the vision of the church is not for sale. And they were so mad at me for saying, it. and then I'd say it in the pulpit on Sunday, the vision of the church is not for sale. Because we don't seek to manipulate God's kingdom with our money to elevate ourselves and get what we want. It's, it's worse in the church than in the political world. And that's what James is talking about. Do not let yourself be corrupted by your ability to abuse and manipulate power. Instead, invest in those who are least and lost and lift them up because that's what followers of Jesus do. Don't show favoritism. Live for graciousness and generosity. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. James is concerned about the the witness of the church, that the church would point towards Jesus faithfully, that when people see Christians following Jesus, they'd be attracted to what they they see so that they would know Jesus better. And, And it turns people off from the church left and right when Christians claim to follow Jesus and ignore the way Jesus lived. When he washed other people's feet and we consider ourselves too good to do it. James doesn't want that. James wants us living faithfully so as to honor Jesus and to have changed lives that change lives. You know, there's another a story sort of buried in the scriptures about another tax collector, Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, there's a story in there about his calling, and you might, you might miss it. Because he's sitting in a tax booth and Jesus comes along and says, Follow me, and he leaves the tax booth, and that's all the story is. But you have to think about that culture of favoritism and social hierarchy, that Jewish culture in which a little boy dreamed of being a rabbi. If Matthew is sitting at a tax booth, we know a couple things about him. We know that as a teenager somewhere along the way, a rabbi said to him, Not you. Go and ply your father's trade. And maybe one day you'll raise a son who can become a rabbi. Matthew has experienced deep rejection in the systems of hierarchy that exist around him. But we know something else about it. He's a, he's a tax collector. That's not the trade that a Jewish man passes on to his son. He has not gone to ply the trade of his father. For whatever reason, his father could not pass on to him a trade. You know, Jesus was the son of a carpenter, so he became a carpenter. James and John were the son of a fisherman, so they became fishermen. Matthew is a tax collector, which means that probably somewhere along the way, he lost his dad. Maybe his dad passed away or left the family. But it looks like Matthew grew up without a dad. In addition addition to being rejected by the the Jewish hierarchy, he's now been co-opted into the Roman system where... Jewish people would take money from other Jewish people, steal some of it for themselves and pass the rest along to Rome. And the tax collectors like Zacchaeus and Matthew were hated for what they did. I suspect it was easy to steal from your own people because they despised you so much. But somewhere along the way, Matthew is sitting there on the side of a road in Israel Collecting tasks, taxes like a toll booth operator and charging people as they went by. And somebody stopped in front of him and their shadow fell across him. Maybe he told them how, many, how much they owed, but the person didn't produce money. And Matthew looked up and saw a face that I think he recognized. Somebody he had heard of, a popular rabbi who was gaining a following. And the rabbi said to him, the words that every Jewish boy longed to hear, come follow me. And somewhere on a road in Israel was left behind an empty tax collector's booth. That's Jesus' call to you and I. Whatever ladder you've been climbing, whatever you've been pursuing, however you've been trying to satisfy the achievement, God, Jesus comes along and says, doesn't matter where you are in society, where you are in life, it doesn't matter how you've succeeded or failed. I choose you. You're mine. Come follow me. His call changes our lives, our value systems, everything we live for. And then he sends us out in the world to seek those who are lost and least to love them the way that he loves us, to go out and find people who are longing to hear those words and to pass the call along. Come, let's go follow Jesus together. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your call. Thank you that you choose us, no matter how broken or lost we've gotten, that you call us into better things. Transform our hearts. Change us that our values might be shaped by your kingdom and not this world. And send us out in the world as your ambassadors to invite in those who are lost and least, those who need to be loved, those who are just waiting to hear the words, come follow me. Send us out like harvesters in the fields. Send us out to gather which, that which belongs to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.